chapter 2, verse 23. For when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Let us pray. Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you that you did it, but it should have been me. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Someone has defined survivor's guilt as our response to someone else's loss when we thought it should have been us. It's our response to the experience of loss in another person's life when we thought it should have been us. While the name implies that this, this to be the response to the loss of life, Survivor's guilt could also be the loss of property or health or your identity. It could be any number of important things in our life, survivor's guilt. Although survivor's guilt can manifest itself differently from one person to the next, it often involves feelings of sadness, shock, and sometimes even a feeling of being responsible. You feel responsible for the loss of someone else. Often someone with survivor's guilt will question, why not me? Why did you spare me? As I watched the news two weeks ago, I was reminded of the pain of a survivor with guilt. When I listened to the news reporter talk about the two five-year-old twins in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, who lost their lives in an an inferno, and a fire, and the neighbors could hear the little children crying for help. And even though they tried to make their way in, the smoke and the flames were too great, and those two twins perished in the fire. The mother of those twins was unable to get to her babies, and as a last resort to save her own life, she jumped out of a second-story window suffering multiple fractures. She's still in the hospital recovering, and I want to suggest to you that the greatest pain that she is going to feel will not be the recovery from the fractures that she suffered, but she is going to suffer survival's, survivor's guilt, especially considering the fact that when an investigation the preliminary investigation was completed, it was discovered that there was only one working fire alarm in the house, and it was in the basement. And the fire started on the first level. Now, we can pray for this dear woman and her family. This tragedy was clearly an accident. But the same cannot be said when we reflect on what transpired 
on a hill in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where Jesus was falsely accused, where he was battered and, bu and, and, and bruised beyond recognition and ultimately condemned to die on the cross. That was not an accident. That was actually a murder, an execution. And if we consider the fact that he didn't die because of anything that he had done, all of us should be suffering survivor's guilt. It was for you and for me Jesus died. In fact, verse 24 of 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us of this, as I've already read, but I'll read it in your hearing again. He himself bore our sins, say my sins, in his own body on the cross so that we might die to sin and to live for righteousness because by his wounds, by his stripes, we have already, we have been healed. Tell somebody it should have been me. In the book of 1 Peter, the apostle whose name is written as the human author of the book, he is writing to a group of discouraged and confused Christians because they are being attacked not for anything wrong that they have done, but they are being attacked because of their faith in Christ. They have been forced to leave their homes. They are what was called the despairer. They have been forced to scatter and to survive by any means righteously necessary. Let me add that. And so they are fleeing for their lives and struggling with how could this happen now that we're saved. I thought when you became a Christian, things would get better. But instead of things getting better, they got worse. They forgot that Jesus said, while you are in the world, you will experience trials and tribulations. You're going to have a hard time because the same way they hated me, they will hate you because of me. He writes to these Christians, and he basically says three things to them. He reminds them of who they are in Jesus. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He reminds them of who they are. And then he tells them, in verses, uh, in, 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 the, in verses 12 through 20, he talks to them about how, as Christians, we should respond when you are being mistreated unfairly by people who have authority over you. When your boss is mistreating you, when you're married and your husband is mistreating you, when you are in a relationship where you are dependent and the person who is responsible for meeting a need that you have, they're with, they are mistreating you. How should you respond? He tells believers how they should respond. And then 
he concludes in this book, why Christians should be willing to serve Christ even when you feel like quitting while being mistreated. Anybody understand that sometimes you're going to be mistreated? He said, but when you are, don't let that be because you are doing evil, that you're doing wrong, that you are disobeying the word. Let me also add that you should not be the person who is mistreating. Peter talks to these discouraged, scattered Christians about how to live by faith under pressure, how to live by faith under pressure. In the verses before us today, verses 21 through 25, Peter basically says two things about why we shouldn't quit when we're under pressure. He, ba he basically says that he wants us to consider the substitution work that Jesus did for us. Say substitution. And then he gives, after stressing the substitution, substitution work that Jesus did, he gives an illustration of how we should respond in light of what Jesus did. He talks about the substitution work of Christ, and he gives us an illustration. It should have been me. It should have been me. The first thing that he does in verse 21, he tells us what Jesus did for us, what Jesus did for me. He says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for who? Christ suffered for you, leaving as an example that you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you. It's personal. Theologians call the suffering for Christ in our place substitutionary atonement. That is, he took our place as our substitute to pay for our sins in such a way that God is now pleased. God is satisfied. John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that, speaking of this death that Jesus died in our place, he says, he himself, he himself is the propitiation, is the atonement for our sin, and not just ours, but for the sins of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking your place in my place, and that substitutionary work that Jesus did paid the price for our sin. We, we were sinners, the Bible says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin, the penalty, the price of our sin, sinners, we don't use that word much anymore, but it means to miss the mark, to fall short of God's perfect requirement that is revealed in his word. We have all fallen short, and the penalty of our sin is death. Death in the Bible means separation, but Jesus is the propitiation. He is the one who has satisfied. He has, he has moved from our, our path the anger, the righteous indignation of God. He has averted because of his death. We don't have to be judged. He is our propitiation. He has satisfied. He has paid the price. God is no longer angry. The sin debt that we owed has been canceled in full. All of your sins and my sins, past, present, and future have been paid for. He is our substitute that has appeased 
the righteous anger of God. Aren't you glad about it? It should have been you. It should have been me, but he did it. He took my place. He did it. How do we know that Jesus was that substitute? Well, 800 years before Jesus took on the flesh, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and Jesus is that living Word. Isaiah put it like this, 800 years before the Messiah, before the Savior and Deliverer came, he said, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one whose people hid their faces from him and despised him. And we held him of low esteem. Surely he has took our pain and he has bore our suffering. Yet we considered when what Jesus did, we said, what bad luck he came upon. We considered him punished by God and by him and afflicted. Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Jesus came in the flesh that he would be despised and rejected, that he would bear our transgressions and our iniquity. And then in the Gospel of John, verses 9 and 10, verses 10 and 11, John, the Gospel writer, affirms that Jesus is none other than that promised Messiah. He said he came unto his own, but his own knew him not. He came into the world, but the world received him not. And so Jesus is that Messiah. He is the one who took our place on the cross. He suffered for us. He suffered for us. Somebody say, he suffered for us. Aren't you glad about it? It should have been me. Years ago, when my grandmother was littering, I was her favorite. She made no secrets about it. Anytime she went anywhere, I was with her. I mean, we stole our first Christmas tree. I was with my grandma. <laughs> She told me to pick it up. I picked it up. I was obedient, and we walked home and didn't pay for it. What a righteous woman. <laughs> but I love my grandmother. Some of you heard this before, but I, I wanted to give my grandmother a birthday gift. I didn't have any money. But my mother was a collector of watches. So I decided... I would bless my grandmother by stealing some of my mother's watches. I learned from her how to get things that she don't pay for. So I, 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 I took the watch, good reason, gift from my grandmother. I put those watches on my ankle, and I went to bed intending the next day to give them to my grandmother. How many of you know that a woman may not wear something for 100 years? But when it's missing, my mother didn't even wear watches. I don't even think she knew how many she had. But she knew it was gone. So she came home. I don't know. Women, they just didn't know when stuff ain't there. I ain't saying nothing. My wife, <clears throat> stuff I done thrown away, and I had to pay for that. But she said, where are my watches? Now, at that time, my cousin Cephas was living with us. My aunt had died, and my mother had taken four of her sibling, sisters and sister's children, and she was raising them. And Cephas had a rap sheet. He was a thief. He, he, he just stole stuff. She automatically assumed it had to be 
stealing secrets. My mother convinced, convinced to whooping on secrets. It had to, I, she whipped him so long, I got tired. I was in bed, but I was worn out. And she kept to wear my watches. I know you got these watches. And she just, just wore him out. Man, I felt so bad for him. Man, I was like, it was almost like it was hurting me. I mean, she went on so long with this whooping that I forgot I had the watches on my ankle. Somebody rings the bell. She asks, Howard, that's my name. I get up. She said, who's outside? Look out the window. So I get out of bed. I ain't thinking about nothing. And I look out the window. She sees these watches on my ankle. <laughs> However, she was so worn out from beating Cephas for a whole hour, she couldn't do, she had no energy to do anything to me. Because Cephas took my place. He didn't deserve it, but he took my place. He didn't volunteer, unlike G Jesus voluntarily took our beating. He voluntarily bore our sins. He voluntarily suffered. He voluntarily was abused. He took our place as our substitute. He didn't deserve it. I don't think I ever apologized to Cephas. <laughs> I felt so bad. But we all deserve the penalty for our sin. But thank God he suffered for you. Somebody say amen. amen. Not only did he suffer, but Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. The Bible says, he who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled insults at him and he, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He could have called a legion of angels. Instead, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. I'm, 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 I realize that the gospel is really simple, but we've forgotten it. We talk about everything else, making it a, a, a greater blessing for another. Uh, how, what is it? Uh, God, expand my border. Yeah, expand my borders. Another blessing, another devil. Oh, I don't even remember all that nonsense. But all the, the, the crux and the central, the central message of Christianity is that Jesus died. Paul says to us, the preaching of the cross is to them who are perishing foolishness. But unto us, it is the power of God unto salvation. You need to know this message. We don't need a Santa Claus Jesus. We need a Savior who can save us from our sin. He lived a sinless, perfect life. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 says, We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, but Jesus the Christ was tempted just like we are, yet he never sinned. That's why the scripture says in verse 16 that we can come boldly unto the throne of grace to find mercy to help us in the time of need. We have not a high priest who doesn't understand our struggles. He was tempted, 
but he never sinned. Aren't you glad that we serve a sinless Savior? He was sinless in his conduct. He says he committed no sin. He was committed. He was sinless in his conversation. He says no deceit was found in his mouth. He did not retaliate, and he was sinless in his confidence. He continued through his suffering, through the pressure, through the rebuke and the criticism and, and the ridicule. He continued to have confidence in the one he was entrusting his soul. He continued to walk by faith, not by sight, through everything that he went through. So Jesus was sinless in his conduct, sinless in his conversation, sinless in his confidence. This probably never happened to you, but a young man was behind on his electric bill. He got a shut-off notice. It was a big bill. And he was told that he had to pay the entire amount or face the shut-off. Somebody said, you can go in and make an agreement. You can make an arrangement. Anybody know anything about making arrangements? Mm -hmm. Come on now. Tell the truth and shame the devil. So he goes in, and he makes a payment arrangement. And he agrees that he will pay $135.01 monthly. He could afford that. He didn't have to pay the outstanding bill as long as he honored the agreement. So the first time the payment was due, he wrote a check for $135. And he sent it in. He felt good about himself. I paid my bill. I paid it on time, only to come home a week later and his lights were turned off. Now he's furious. Why would they turn my lights off? I did what I said I was going to do. I paid my bill. So he calls, and he, he's yelling at the representative, how dare you turn my lights off? I paid the bill. They said, no, you didn't, sir. So what do you mean I didn't pay my bill? I paid 135 He said, yes, you did pay 135 but your bill was $135.01. He had his stuff turned off. For one sense, he broke the contract. The Bible says that the law of God is perfect. And if any person keeps the entire law, but they stumble in one point, just fail to keep one law, they are guilty of breaking the entire commandment. If Jesus had failed once, he would have broken the commandment. He would have not been the sacrifice that would have been acceptable to God. He never sinned. The law is like a chain, a link chain you got around your neck. Some of us have check chains that are thousands of dollars, and the rest of us have checks or chains that are like $30. But if you break one link, how many links do you have to break for the chain to be broken? Just one. Jesus never broke the link. He came to fulfill the righteousness which was required by the law. He never failed to obey God. He lived a sinless, perfect life. That's what distinguishes Jesus from other world religious leaders. He lived a sinless life. That's why when Pilate was preparing to make a decision about Jesus. He told the Jews, he said, I know you want to do him in. I know you want to crucify him, but I'm washing my hands of this man's blood because I find no fault in him. He lived a sinless life. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. But here's a final thing. 
He died for your sins and broke the power it has over us. He died for your sins and he broke the power that sin has over us. The Bible says he bore our sins in his own body on a tree on the cross that we haven't, he haven't died to sin. We might live to righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Let me just say that last part of that verse, when you go to Isaiah chapter 53, the wounds that Christ suffered on the cross heals us of the greatest disease that is the only one that is incurable that mankind was born with. David said, I was born in iniquity and in sin. I was, I was shaped in iniquity and born in sin through my mother's womb. We are naughty by nature. We got a sin nature. And so when Jesus shed his blood, his blood heals us from the greatest sickness and the sickness that we had that only Christ could cure is the, sin, the sickness of sin. Yes, he heals us physically, but he never promises that we'll never get physically ill. We're going to all die from something. You can, you, can, you can claim in the name of Jesus, I tell that devil, you're going to die of something. But your soul, your soul is forever healed by the stripes that Jesus suffered. Why did Jesus die? We had a sin problem. The Bible says, but he was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. The punishment, our punishment was brought upon him. The punishment was brought upon him. We had a sin problem. We were separated from God, you and I. Oh, we live in such a world that is, have watered down wrong. Wrong is wrong. And for a Christian, wrong shouldn't feel right. Amen. Come on, church. One of the things that ought to happen when you do become a part of the family of God, that the Spirit of God, the Bible says that you become the temple of God and the Spirit of God will live in you. When the Spirit is living in you, when you do wrong, you will come under conviction. God bless any man or woman who will marry somebody who calls himself a Christian that never feels conviction, that never feels. When's the last time you confessed anything? The Bible says if you confess your sin, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you. But if you say you have not sinned, the devil is a liar. <laughs> so the, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. You need to be, are you considering Mary? Do they confess their sins? Do they feel conviction when they do wrong? Can they say these two words, I'm sorry, I apologize, forgive me? If they can't apologize and say, forgive me that I was wrong, and even say, you were right, you need to be stepping. <laughs> Don't you stay there. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but stands in the way of the sinner, or seed of the seed of scornful. But his delight, you better keep on stepping. You're in the presence of sinner, a sinner who doesn't seem to need forgiveness. Salvation does not make us perfect. But the perfect one who is Jesus lives in us. Somebody say amen. amen. We had a sin problem. We were lost but didn't know it. The Bible says we were like sheep without a shepherd. There was none righteous. No, not one. We weren't searching for God. He was searching for us because he ain't lost. We were lost. 
We, hadn't, we, we lacked the capacity to do anything about our situation. The Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because all of our righteousnesses in the sight of God, the best you can do, the scripture says, is as filthy rags. But by the washing and the renewing and the mercy of God, he has, he has saved us because of his mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. We lack the capacity to get our act together. Can somebody say amen? amen? One of the things that should be happening that you are in Christ, you ought to be growing. You ought to be changing. The scripture says you shall know them by their fruit. Are you any different since you said yes to Jesus? Paul says such were some of you. There's a lifestyle that Christians don't live. Even though those who are around us are church-going folk that live in like they don't know Jesus, the Bible says that in the last of the last days, there will be those who call themselves Christians who will have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. They will be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. And then you've got the whole list of the works of the flesh. When you look at that list, does that list match your life? The works of the flesh or the works of the spirit. Let me run on. How does the death of Christ benefit us? We had a problem. We lacked the capacity to do anything about it. But how does it benefit? He saves you from the penalty of sin. I've already shared that. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Write that down. You don't have that written down. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God. We were born without a pulse. We were flatlined spiritually. The Bible said we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were, he saves you from the guilt of sin. The Bible says there is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ. You don't have to be guilty and struggle with shame. If you're struggling with shame and guilt after you confess your sin, that ain't of God. That's the devil. Unforgiving people have a way of trying to make you feel guilty and shamed. That's not how God works. The Bible said he, he, he cast our sins in the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore. As far as the east, it's from the west. That's how God forgives us when we confess. And so he saves us from the penalty of sin, saves us from the guilt of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. You don't have to live under the control of sin anymore. You can't be said, the devil made me do it. You, you did it because you chose to. The Bible says, make no provision for the fulfilling of the lust of the flesh. Flee. There's some stuff you need to be fleeing from. There's some numbers you need to take out of your cell phone. There's some places you don't need to be going. There's some conversations you need to stop having. There's some stuff you need to stop watching. There's some music you don't need to listen to anymore because they take, they trigger sin in you. And next thing you know, you don't put the Holy Spirit on pause and you write back. Living in slop. Living like you have no relationship with the Lord. Sin has no power over us. But you can let sin out of the cage. And when sin is in control, I don't care how long you've been saved. We are capable of doing the worst of evil. As if we don't even know Jesus. And so he saves us from the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, the power of sin. One day he's going to save us. 
from the very presence of sin. The Bible talks about this in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 17. He said, all of creation is yearning for that day, like a mother in labor who is travailing for the deliverance. One day this corruptible body will be released and be returned to the Lord. The Bible says that the trumpet of God is going to sound, and the dead in Christ are going to be raised. And we're going to be taken from this earth in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. Somebody said that hadn't happened yet. That hadn't happened yet. Now, how should we respond in light of the fact that Jesus died for us? The example. The Bible says he never sinned. We will sin, but we should be sinning less and less. What was Jesus' example? Let no corrupt communication come out your mouth. Stop cussing. Stop gossiping. Stop saying things that God never said about you. You aren't a failure. You're not dumb. You're not ugly. You're not, God is not finished with you. You're not a failure. David said, put a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Start obeying the word by walking by faith. Jesus kept entrusting himself. God is going to handle this. I'm going through right now. But he said, "Render, do not render evil for evil. Do not retaliate because vengeance is the Lord. He kept entrusting himself to the Lord, even as he hung on the cross, even though he was being brutally brutalized before the cross, he kept trusting in the Lord. You need to continue to trust in the Lord. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The way you learn how to trust in God is to study his word. Study to show yourself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the scripture. Keep on trusting in the Lord in the midst of all that is going on. We win. We're still on the winning team. Somebody say amen. We win. It should have been me. It should have been me. When I think about how Jesus told his disciples on the night he was betrayed, he said to them, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be turned over into the hands of cruel men. They're going to falsely accuse me. I'm going to be put to death on a cross. You would have thought the disciples would have been sympathetic. Instead, they argued about who was going to be the greatest. They should have had survival, survivor's guilt. When they finally made it to the place where Jesus was going to institute the Lord's Supper, they refused to wash his feet and one another's feet because they were too prideful. They should have had survivor's guilt. When Jesus led them to the garden of Gethsemane and he asked them to pray, Peter, James, and John, three times he came and he found them along with the others asleep. They should have had survivor's guilt. When the guards finally came to get Jesus and Judas betrayed him with a kiss, and Peter took out his, his switchblade. The Bible said he had a sword. He was, he was packing. <laughs> and he cut the guard's ear off. Peter should have had survivor's guilt 
because Jesus bent down and he picked the ear up and put it right back on the, the guard's ear. And then he said, those who live by the sword, those who live by the peace will be perishing by the peace. He should have had survivor's guilt. Peter should have had survivor's guilt with the rest of them because as soon as Jesus was taken into custody, they all forsook him. They got ghosts. But Peter, who said, they may all deny you. They may all turn their backs on you. But I got you, Jesus. And he meant it. That's why he cut the guard's ear off. But when Jesus put his ear back on, he said, I don't know no fighting like this. I know street fighting. I know kung fu, but I don't know. Don't cut somebody and win. So, so now Peter is warming his hands at the enemy's fire as he's listening and watching what is happening to Jesus at the hands of the religious leaders. And when he was asked, do you know Jesus? Three times he said, I don't know him. And by the time he got to the third, we deny. He's cussing. Ah, Well, he said, your speech tonight. Well, let me let my speech not deny me. He starts cussing. He should have suffered survival guilt. But that was on Friday. See, they forgot that Jesus said, if you destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up again. And so the good news is this. While it should have been us and we should have survival's guilt, Jesus did not remain in the grave. Stand where he didn't remain in the grave. But early Sunday morning, death could not hold him down. The grave could not keep him. He rose up early Sunday morning with all power and all authority. He took the sting of death. He conquered the grave. He took the fear of death because in Christ we have life. Because he lives, I can what? I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can face my future. It should have been me, but I thank God it wasn't me. Because if I had died, I couldn't have saved you. I would have bust hell wide open just like you. But because he died, he died, but he got up. And because he got up, the Bible says he is the first type of those who will follow. For we are going to be like Jesus. We're going to receive resurrected bodies. He's going to change us. Somebody say amen. Aren't you glad about it? I'm so glad that the Lord allowed Jesus, his only begotten son, to die for me. Because he died for me, I've got some clapping in my hands. Somebody ought to praise him today. I can lift up my hands and rejoice in him. I got some dancing in my feet because he lives. I know, I know that one day he will call you. He will call me by name because he lives. It should have been me, but it was him. And because it was him, we have life. We have life that will never end in his presence. Somebody say, it should have been. It should have been me. Thank you, Jesus. Let us pray. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you for saving me. Thank you, God, for wiping my slate clean. 
thank you, God, for making me brand new in you. Thank you, oh God, for writing my name in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you, God, for this joy that I have. The world didn't give it to me, nor can the world take away. We bless you, oh God. As every head is bowed and all eyes are closed, we serve a risen Savior. Jesus is alive. What about you? Have you made that decision to?